China's navy is bigger than America's. But the U.S. is building expensive ships too slowly and too few in number. We might not be ready to fight China, if we need to. Welcome to America Uncovered. I'm Chris Chappell. Earlier last month, the U.S. Navy finished its most advanced aircraft carrier with new cutting-edge technology. Behold, elevators. No, not those elevators. These elevators. Yes, these are elevators for missiles. It apparently was a major breakthrough. The elevators lift munitions up from the depths of the ship to either the hangar bay or flight deck. According to the Navy, the advanced technology enables fewer sailors to safely move ordnance from weapons magazines to the flight deck with unparalleled speed and agility. Yes, unparalleled speed and agility until someone presses all the buttons, forcing the missiles to stop on every floor. Now you might be thinking, advanced technology? These are elevators we're talking about, right? Well, according to the Navy, these aren't just your run-of-the-mill elevators. They use things like electromagnetic motors instead of hydraulic systems. The elevators can lift more weight, up to 24,000 pounds, than those on other carriers. Their design also allows significantly safer operation. These elevators are just one of 23 brand new technologies developed for the Navy's newest aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald R. Ford, named after the 38th U.S. President. It's also the only U.S. aircraft carrier to have pardoned a previous aircraft carrier. The USS Gerald R. Ford has 11 of these high-tech missile elevators. Because the elevators can lift more weight, they allow the Ford to stock a wider range of weapons for its air wing. This is essential, especially if you want to get your fighter jets armed and launched quickly during combat. This all sounds pretty incredible, except for the fact that the USS Ford is a little behind schedule. According to Senator James Inhofe, the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, it's six years late and $2.8 billion over budget. At a whopping $13 billion, the world's most expensive aircraft carrier has a long history of overpromising and underperforming. It was originally supposed to be delivered in 2015. It was officially commissioned in 2017 but the deployment date kept being pushed back due to technical failures. When it comes to the weapons elevators, when it set sail in 2019, the USS Ford initially only had two out of 11 elevators working. But good news, last year only four of the elevators were broken. But it's not just about the weapons elevators. There were also persistent electrical problems, faults with the fighter jet launching system, and hundreds of clogged toilets. The list goes on. The USS Ford went through a lot. This stems from a much deeper problem that's plaguing the US Navy. I'll show you after the break. Welcome back. The US Navy hasn't been wasting time and money on just the USS Gerald R. Ford. It's been wasting time and money for a decade, building all kinds of bad ships. Part of the reason 
is the Navy has been so enamored with high-tech that it's cramming in as much of it onto ships as possible. According to Congresswoman Elaine Luria, a Navy veteran and the vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee, the Navy embraced technology for technology's sake. The result? Too few ships that cost too much money. By building up new ships with new, untested tech, the Navy has made ships prone to further delays if any one technology failed. Two classic examples of this problem are the Zumwalt-class destroyer and the Littoral Combat Ship, LCS for short. The Zumwalt-class destroyer promised that it would dominate the seas with its latest tech, stealth, and reduced crew size. But this ship faced a lot of setbacks. Its advanced gun system didn't work right, and its long-range land attack projectiles, GPS-guided shells, were too expensive, a whopping $800,000 for each shot. So each shot of this weapon cost more than a McMansion in Arkansas. Its increasing costs led to crippling downgrades on its air search capabilities and weapons. And thanks to all these factors, instead of producing 32 Zumwalt-class destroyers as originally planned, the U.S. Navy is now commissioning just three. Yes, three. And those three destroyers alone cost $23 billion. As for the LCS, the Littoral Combat Ship, it was supposed to be cheap, fast, flexible, and easy to build, but it turned out to be literally none of those things. After spending $30 billion over a period of around two decades, the U.S. Navy has managed to acquire just 35 of the vessels. There were supposed to be 52. This class of ships was supposed to have swappable mission modules that can do specific missions like surface warfare, anti-submarine warfare, and minesweeping. But those capabilities were taken out to simplify the LCS. Due to flaws marked by cracked hulls, engine failures, unexpected rusting, software snafus, weapons glitches, and persistent criticism of how vulnerable they are to an attack. Even then, the Navy found 32 key reliability issues that plague its LCS fleet last year. Both the Zumwalt and LCS were major disappointments. Why were they built this way? Well, according to the Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office, whole programs were premised on the introduction of new technologies that will need to work while designing the program not knowing if those technologies will actually work. But even if the technologies worked out, the costs would have skyrocketed due to hidden costs like high-level training and maintenance. Getting massive cost overruns and ships with reduced capabilities delivered late and incomplete. That's a terrible deal for the U.S., especially if a naval war were to break out with China. And that's another dire problem the U.S. Navy faces. I'll tell you more after the break. Welcome back. Last year, the Chinese Navy became the world's largest, with about 355 ships and submarines. Yep, even bigger than the United States. Of course, even if China has a bigger navy, the U.S. still has several advantages. It can project power much further than China. That's because the U.S. has military bases and ports all around the world, 
and the U.S. has allies that can contribute with their own navies. But China can manufacture ships much faster than the U.S. It has dozens of shipyards. U.S. shipbuilding, meanwhile, is at its lowest ebb ever. We only have a few shipyards capable of building warships. This is bad news, especially if war breaks out with China. According to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a DC-based think tank, U.S. war surge production is too slow. In the event of war, each ship lost would be effectively irreplaceable. That's because the replacement time for even one ship is so long that in effect any ship lost in a conflict would not be replaced until the conflict was long over. The longer we engage in any major conflict, the weaker we'll be when we come out of it. So how did we get into this position? One word. Laziness. We got lazy ever since the Soviet Union collapsed. After the Cold War, the demand for weapons declined, the need for surge capability disappeared, and the industrial base was under tremendous pressure to reduce cost. This has made our industrial base more brittle in the past two decades, and it continues to become even more brittle. Some people might say we can ramp up production like what we did in World War II, but as the Center for Strategic and International Studies points out, the mobilization in World War II succeeded because it began years before the United States formally entered the conflict. Europe was at war with Germany for more than two years before the U.S. joined. But in the 2020s, a conflict with China might come too quickly for us to react. We might not have enough time to build up enough military firepower in response. Which is why some say we need American pirates. No, seriously, this is not a misguided Disney reboot. This is a real argument. This idea was discussed in a publication by the U.S. Naval Institute. Technically, privateering and pirating are different, because privateering uses rules and commissions called letters of marquee issued by the government. The U.S. Constitution explicitly grants Congress the power to do this. Think of it like legal piracy. Privateering could offer a low-cost tool to enhance deterrence in peacetime and gain advantage in wartime. Privateers, think Blackwater military contractor types, could be authorized to capture or destroy vessels and goods for the U.S. government and be rewarded for it. The U.S. hasn't used privateers since the War of 1812, but the U.S. Navy's deficiencies now are so bad, the idea is back on the table. Yes, we are deciding between throwing tens of billions of dollars at high-tech ships that break, or pirates. Which would you choose? Leave your comments below. And if you like this show, please know we could not do it without direct support from viewers like you. Visit patreon.com slash americauncovered and contribute a dollar or more per episode to help us keep the show going. So click the link below. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. Thanks for watching America Uncovered. China and Russia are testing new technologies to weaponize space. Can the U.S. Space Force keep up? Welcome to America Uncovered. I'm Chris Chappell. It's the new year, and my New Year's resolution is to be healthier. Unfortunately, it's winter in New York. 
And let's just say I'm not getting my 10,000 daily steps in. The good news is part of being healthier is to eat right. And that's why I recommend starting your day with Magic Spoon. It's a high-protein, gluten-free, and low-carb cereal. Mmm. That tastes great. I'll tell you more at the end. So, it's been a little over two years since the U.S. Space Force was founded. While it was controversial at the time, probably, because it was done under President Trump, there's no question that the U.S. needs to defend itself in space. Seriously, did no one learn anything from that documentary, Independence Day? And the U.S. needs to defend itself in space now more than ever, since Russia and China have both been experimenting with space-based technologies that could be used against the U.S. and its allies. And they're getting more and more advanced. Although Russia is still using old-fashioned space poison. And with both countries making moves to invade other countries, this could throw a real wrench in the U.S.'s response if they were to invade. Two years ago, Russian spacecraft were found shadowing a U.S. spy satellite. Someone should probably warn that U.S. satellite not to drink any tea. And Russia's been conducting anti-satellite missile tests. The most recent one was just last November. Russia warned at the time that if NATO crosses Russia's red line, it risks losing all 32 of its GPS satellites at once. Although that won't be much of a loss if the GPS NATO uses is Waze. You want me to make a left onto a busy street with no light during rush hour? I hope Russia space poisons you, Waze. Anyway, Russia's anti-satellite missile launch targeted one of its old satellites and created 1,500 pieces of debris. Well, that's insane. It is a nice change of pace to see Russia kill something working for them that's not alive. Actually, I may have spoken too soon, because get this, the impact of the strike even put its astronauts on the International Space Station in danger. They had to shelter in capsules to avoid getting hit by the debris. And that debris is still wreaking havoc. Earlier this month, it came close to hitting a Chinese satellite. Russia gonna Russia. They created almost as much debris as an L.A. train heist. But in case you thought China was the victim in all this, it's not. China has been weaponizing space just like Russia has. The Pentagon says Chinese military strategists regard the ability to use space-based systems and to deny them to adversaries as central to modern warfare. Over the years, China has been improving its surveillance capabilities. Last year, it said it launched a tiny satellite that it said can take crystal-clear images of American cities. The Department of Defense is warning that China appears to have developed a satellite with a robotic arm that could attack other satellites. China also created a device meant to cause a satellite to steadily explode. An armed satellite that makes things explode. This new season of BattleBots is gonna be nuts! Rear Admiral Michael Studeman of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command says Chinese space technology capable of jamming satellites is on the march. Jamming means preventing satellites from communicating with their targets, usually on Earth. Wow. So satellite jamming must be why that Tinder date I had two years ago never called me back. That's the only explanation. I didn't get ghosted. I got orbited. 
Space Force's Vice Chief of Space Operations said the U.S. is dealing with reversible attacks on U.S. satellites every single day. Reversible attacks are attacks that don't do permanent damage to the satellite, so things like lasers, radio frequency jammers, and cyber attacks. This makes it tricky for the U.S. to respond. Does temporarily disabling or blinding a satellite count as an attack? If so, how should the U.S. respond? It's not worth going to war over the space equivalent of a satellite firing off a roast joke, even if it temporarily disabled the satellite's self-esteem when the Chinese satellite said, you're so fat, when you have a stroke, you smell burning Texas toast. General Thompson says we're at a point now where there's a whole host of ways that our space systems can be threatened. And he warns that China could become the dominant power in space within the next decade, even overtaking the aliens from that documentary, Independence Day. So what has the U.S. Space Force been doing to fight back? I'll explain after the break. Welcome back. According to Space Force's Chief of Space Operations, the U.S. faces a space domain that has gotten a lot more competitive. And because of this, we might see a fighting Space Force this year. Ooh, what does that mean? A fighting Space Force? Isn't that basically the plot to Space Jam? Oh, please tell me they're not going to try and recruit R. Kelly. One way the U.S. Space Force is fighting back is by launching inspecting satellites. These satellites are to keep an eye on its adversaries' satellites. It's also eyeing a new mission, tracking ground targets from space. You might be wondering, those don't sound much like fighting capabilities. That's because most of the Space Force missions are not about attacking an enemy. The Space Force maintains and protects the military satellites, tracks space junk, operates GPS satellites, and maintains an arsenal of ground-based jammers that could block messages from adversaries during an attack. And Tinder dates from two years ago. The U.S. Space Force faces a few hurdles to becoming the world's dominant space agency. For one, it's just two years old, which means it's still a toddler. And you can't trust toddlers in spaceships. You're not even supposed to leave them in hot cars. The Space Force also has a convoluted and bureaucratic process for acquiring new technology, which many fear will prevent it from updating and diversifying its satellites. The clearest point of concern on Capitol Hill and among analysts is the sluggishness when it comes to space acquisition reform, hobbled by bureaucracy. One of the reasons Space Force was created was to streamline the DOD's convoluted decision-making process. But so far, that goal hasn't been accomplished. They're worse at making decisions than a married couple figuring out where to go for dinner. Stop arguing and just go to Applebee's like you always do, Dan and Lisa. According to Politico, bypassing the Pentagon's cumbersome decision-making process is expected to be most challenging. As China and Russia build up their anti-satellite capabilities, the U.S. Space Force will have to build up and acquire new satellite technology fast. And part of that includes nuclear power. I'll explain more after the break. Welcome back. There is a chance that the U.S. and China could soon be in a race for nuclear-powered satellites. According to aerospace think tank the Mitchell Institute, Using nuclear energy in space has some big advantages over conventional liquid satellite fuel. Nuclear power is nearly twice as efficient in providing thrust. 
It can deliver more than 100,000 newtons of thrust, enough power to accelerate a typical automobile from 0 to 60 miles per hour in 0.3 seconds. Forget spaceships. When can I get nuclear power for my car? Your car's electric? Well, mine's atomic. Thrust is important if you're trying to move quickly in space. China's space program is already doing tests on nuclear-powered missions to the Moon and Mars. Of course the Chinese Communist Party wants to go to Mars. After all, it is the Red Planet. And experts from NASA say the U.S. needs to invest more in nuclear-powered spacecraft to stay competitive. So the U.S. Space Force will really need to pick up the pace if the U.S. is going to stay ahead of its adversaries, particularly China. And we all hope it does, because no one wants to live in a world where China controls space. Even if it makes products cheaper by using sweatshops on the moon. And this episode is sponsored by Magic Spoon. If you're trying to cut down on carbs or get all that sugar out of your diet, check out Magic Spoon. It's got zero grams of sugar, 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Also, it's only 140 calories. Plus, it tastes really good. One of my favorite flavors is the frosted flavor. There's also a bunch of other ones I like, like peanut butter, cocoa, and fruity. So if you're like me and you're trying to keep unhealthy foods out of your diet, check out Magic Spoon. It's a great balance of being healthy and super delicious. And I've got a special link for you guys below the video. You can build your own four pack of Magic Spoon flavors and get $5 off. Magic Spoon ships in the U.S. and now also to Canada and the U.K. Plus, Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So click the link below and get your Magic Spoon now. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. Thanks for watching America Uncovered. China threatens to invade Taiwan, but while many focus on China's navy, the real threat may be something entirely different. Welcome to China Uncensored, I'm Chris Chappell. This episode is sponsored by PC Doctor Toolbox. Protect your PC from software crashes, hardware failures, and the kind of glitches that make your life miserable. So, the Chinese Communist Party desperately wants to conquer Taiwan. Over the past year, the Chinese regime has sent wave after wave of jets near Taiwan. An attempted Chinese invasion is looking more and more likely. The Economist has called Taiwan the most dangerous place on Earth. Even more dangerous than a Walmart on Black Friday. Many U.S. analysts focus on the rapid expansion of the Chinese Communist Party's navy, known as the People's Liberation Army Navy. Yes, the PLA Navy actually belongs to the Communist Party, not to the Chinese government. And China now has the largest navy, even bigger than the United States. But there's a problem with focusing on China's navy. It's easy for U.S. military strategists to imagine a scenario where China sends its fleets to Taiwan where it can be easily picked off by American torpedoes and missiles. So nothing to worry about, right? 
But Taiwan faces a much larger threat from China, one that the U.S. would have a much harder time handling. I'll tell you what it is right after the break. Welcome back. The Chinese Navy might not be the biggest threat to Taiwan. Taiwan is an island less than 100 miles off the Chinese coast. Think about this. Would the U.S. need its massive fleet in an invasion of Cuba? We'd probably use other tactics. That's why, according to the nonprofit Nuclear Threat Initiative, we could be facing a Taiwan missile crisis. China has thousands of missiles permanently pointed at Taiwan. That's not including the capabilities of the PLA rocket force. China could pulverize Taiwan's air defenses, runways, and communications. That would free the way for Chinese bombers, aircraft, and drones. The main purpose would be to pave a path for Chinese troops into Taiwan, either by helicopter or parachute. The Chinese Communist Party is definitely focusing on its paratroopers and helicopters. Exercises demonstrate that Chinese airborne forces are undertaking more challenging jumps, including at night, in coastal areas, and even over the water. According to state-run media reports, China has devoted its most advanced bomber, the Y-20, to paratrooper training. Backing up the paratroopers will be China's enormous fleet of transport and attack helicopters. This report by a Russian expert on the PLA is called the Celestial Rotary Wing Empire. It claims China has 1,500 helicopters. And according to Lyle Goldstein, the director of Asia Engagement at Defense Priorities, between parachute and hellborn forces, China could quite reasonably hope to put 50,000 soldiers on the island in the first wave, and well over 100,000 in the first 24 hours. That won't be easy, but Chinese strategists are acutely aware that these first assault waves will suffer very high casualties, but they consider this a necessary cost to obtain victory. They call that the Zap Brannigan strategy. These troops could be further resupplied by helicopter fleets or even heavy drones developed specifically for that purpose. What this means is an invasion of Taiwan might not be a sea battle with a possible beach invasion, but a bloody infantry fight in Taiwanese cities. And it looks like this is exactly what the Chinese Communist Party has been preparing for. They've been training soldiers for stealthy insertion, night operations, sniper tactics, securing hard targets, urban combat, and mountain operations. They've also invested in small, maneuverable craft like this amphibious all-terrain vehicle. These vessels have speed, stealth, and low cost, but perhaps their most notable virtue is their small size allowing them to be carried and launched by almost any civilian vessel, including ships of China's enormous fishing fleet. Meanwhile, the U.S. has been investing in expensive high-tech ships that take too long to build. As we discussed on a recent episode of America Uncovered, has China's Navy already beaten the U.S. Navy? I'll put a link to that below if you want to check it out. All this is to say, the best thing the U.S. could do is to prevent a Chinese invasion from happening in the first place. And the U.S. can do that by showing strong support for Taiwan and cutting China off from U.S. money. Because the alternative is a bloody war the Chinese Communist Party will have no problem fighting. And this episode is sponsored by PC Doctor Toolbox. Computer and software crashes, hardware failures, and general computer slowdowns are way too common. And they can happen at the worst times, like when you're at a business meeting, or when China is in the middle of invading Taiwan. 
It could happen anytime. And that's why if you're using a PC, you should also be using PC Doctor Toolbox. Stop crashes and other system problems before they happen. And we have a 50% off discount just for China Uncensored viewers. Use the link and coupon code below to take advantage of this limited time offer. I'm Chris Chappell. Thanks for watching China Uncensored. China is taking a major step toward military dominance in the South China Sea with a secret new weapon. Welcome to China Uncensored, I'm Chris Chappell. China has made a lot of promises in the South China Sea. First, not to build artificial islands and call them territory. They broke that. Then they promised they wouldn't militarize them. They broke that. They even flew nuclear bombers on these islands. The Chinese military said it was so they could reach all territory, conduct strikes at any time, and strike in all directions. That obviously has a lot of countries in Asia worried. Five trillion dollars of shipping goes through the South China Sea each year. Plus, it has huge untapped oil and natural gas reserves, and the Chinese Communist Party claims all of it. And now, the party has built a new weapon in the South China Sea that may secure its control over the region. A weapon the U.S. military may be defenseless against. So what is this terrifying new weapon? Antennas. Seriously, antennas. Now maybe that doesn't sound scary to you. Or maybe it does, maybe you're antennaphobic. The U.S. military certainly is, because they know what this means. According to a new report by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, China is ramping up its electronic warfare and communications capabilities. These satellite photos show a massive buildup of satellite dishes and antenna at a base near the town of Mumian on Hainan Island. They work in conjunction with similar antenna and radar facilities on Subi Reef and Fiery Cross Reef in the South China Sea. So what's so scary? These bases could give China the ability to turn the South China Sea into a communication and navigation dead zone. In other words, all of the United States' really expensive military equipment could be worthless. Electronic and communications warfare is the future of war. That's according to this recent Brookings Institute report. It says the war of the future will not only be about explosions, but will also be about disabling the systems that make armies run. We could see effects as stodgy as making a tank impossible to start up, or sophisticated as retargeting a missile mid-air. Imagine if China launches an invasion of Taiwan and is able to redirect U.S. missiles back at the aircraft carriers that launched them. Does that sound far-fetched? Just wait. These military bases China has built are ideally placed to detect, monitor, and interfere with any electronic activity in the region. Combat aircraft may not find their targets. Drones may turn upon their owners. It could break the complex web of data sharing that's supposed to make modern weapons, such as the F-35 stealth fighter, overwhelmingly effective. Basically, digital devices in the area could be hacked. 
and it's already happened. Last year, a Chinese news report claimed a U.S. combat aircraft lost control while flying over the South China Sea. The news report said the fighter planes were completely out of control and could not communicate with the outside world, but they did not know what happened. The Chinese report seems to be talking about an incident in 2018, when the USS Theodore Roosevelt sailed near the Philippines. The Roosevelt sent out a surveillance aircraft, and the pilot told Philippine News that China had attempted to jam the aircraft. Intelligence gathered by the US during the patrol suggested that the Chinese had placed communication jamming devices on some of the artificial islands they had built in the South China Sea. Now that's very different from the aircraft losing control. Was the Chinese side exaggerating? Was the US side downplaying it? Hard to say. But this is where the future of warfare is headed. And the fact the Chinese Communist Party is rapidly building up its electronic and communications warfare capabilities in the South China Sea, where many fear the next world war could start, should have everyone a bit concerned. But don't worry, China promises they only have peaceful intentions in the region. What do you think? Let me know in the comments below. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. See you next time. China has a plan to take over the world. What can we do to stop it? Welcome to China Uncensored, I'm Chris Chappell. If we don't stop them now, the Chinese Communist Party will take over the world. That's the conclusion of a new book, The Concentration of Power, Institutionalization, Hierarchy, and Hegemony. I sat down with the author, Anders Kaur, to discuss how China has been taking over international institutions while the U.S. sat back and let it happen, and what we can do about it now. Anders, thanks for joining me in person. This is just Great like be the before times. Yeah. <laughs> so your new book, The Concentration of Power, I guess, what is Concentration of Power? Uh, the book argues that there's over thousands of years of history, there's a concentration of power from tribes to kingdoms, states, states and empires, growing bigger geographically. TikTok influencers. TikTok influencers, yeah. The more people that watch you, the more people will watch you in the future. I always took it as like, you know, a Tinkerbell thing. Like, she needed people to clap for her. I need people to watch, otherwise I cease to exist. I believe that's true, yeah. Well, so how does a concentration of power apply to China and what's happening with like the UN or the EU? Uh, China is, as one of the biggest and most concentrated forms of power globally, uh, if you think about it, Xi Jinping has power over a massive economy that by some measures, GDP purchasing power parity is bigger than the US economy, is bigger than the European economy. Um, so all of that power tends to aggregate more power. Xi Jinping has uh, the ability as a gatekeeper to control who comes into the country. And he's using that very effectively to aggregate more power. He's, he's, he's using that to control what people do in terms of things like Taiwan or South China Sea, the Olympics and whatnot. 
So a lot of people talk about how, you know, essentially what we're seeing in the world now is like another Cold War where you sort of have the United States as the arbiter of like the, the liberal democracy kind of world order bashing up against the Chinese Communist Party. So this is kind of what you talk about in your book about different hierarchies of power and each one trying to see which one is the strongest. That's right. And it, it is, I do see it as a Cold War. Um, I think it's much more dangerous today than the old Cold War because China's economy is much more, is much bigger, is much more powerful than the old Soviet economy. And uh, China is able to steal through technological industrial espionage uh, much more data globally from us and from the Europeans than the Soviets were ever able to do. And I guess, you know, you talk about China's economic power. Uh, they're also making a huge push to become military power as well. Absolutely. The economic power is what feeds into the military power. So when we allow China to extract economic power by giving them free access to U.S. and European markets, we're really complicit and in, in enabling their military. And then they can use that military to, say, seize control of the South China Sea and tax shipping there and use that money to fuel their military even more. So it kind of cycles up. Exactly. So how, how what are some of the specific uh, tactics China is using to uh, outcompete the U.S.? I mean, you mentioned like intellectual property theft, but, uh, you know, there's inst international institutions like the U.N. How we'll just go through some of the, the ways. Well, I think one it. of the most concerning ways that and effective ways that it's gaining power is by compromising elites around the world. It's called elite capture. Mm -hmm. um, and we see it, I think, the most clear and least talked about example is Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden uh, got a three carat diamond from a CCP operative. He got, um, you know, he was doing millions of dollars of business in China. He was working with John Kerry's son uh, to do business in China. John Kerry, according to some reports, still has business interests in China. And John Kerry is incredibly influential on all things China because he's in charge of the climate uh, change negotiations. So um, we're in a very difficult position. And this is not unlike what the CCP does to third world countries in Africa. They compromise third world countries in Africa, in the Philippines, for example, through doing millions of dollars worth of, of uh, business with the children, with the business associates of uh, the leadership of these countries. And that's how they influence these countries to vote uh, with China at the UN, for example. Well, so in your, in your book, you talk about how power inevitably coalesces, it concentrates in different places. So it, does that mean it's inevitable that China takes over the world? I think there's a trend in the direction towards more authoritarian power, towards bigger states, bigger empires. Um, so China is well-placed to take over the world. It's obvious, uh, everyone knows that uh, they're globally, uh, they're seeking global hegemony. Um, Rush Doshi has written about it in Oxford University Press, so it's establishment belief now. Um, but I don't think it's inevitable. I think that if we realize what's happening soon enough, thanks to your show and thanks to other uh, important work by um, other scholars like yourself, <laughs> we, if we become alert to this fact quickly enough, and if we take strong enough action quickly enough, um, I think we can stop it. But we really have to get much more serious. Well, so I guess that's the question. Like, you know, China's, China is trying to take over the world. The, the cards are on the table. 
the writings on the wall, other prescient analogies. Uh, why isn't more being done to stop them? I mean, things are changing, definitely, but like, what what should the United States be doing? I think we should be limiting access of China much more seriously to our technology, to our economy. Um, I think it should be we should be limiting access of China to the European economy. Um, I think we should be kicking China out of our international organizations like the UN and WTO. It's you know some a country that's you committing a triple genocide against Uyghurs, Falun Gong, and Tibetans should never be allowed to be in polite company. Should, their diplomats should be excluded from all international organizations. Well, so how how would that be possible? Like, as far as I know, the WTO has no process for kicking a member out. How could we kick China out of the UN? Well, just refuse them visas. You you refuse their diplomats visas. If if uh, the U.S., Switzerland, Italy, and France all refuse Chinese diplomatic visas, uh, they would have a very hard time operating at the UN because most of the UN organizations are in those uh, three countries. Mm-hmm. So so what you're talking about is just a really a much more amplified, aggressive approach yeah. to China. If you're not aggressive with China, China will be aggressive with you. Hmm. So, well, then I guess the question is, if the United States or, you know, whatever you want to call this other uh, system of power, this other hierarchy of power that's fighting against the Chinese Communist Party, what would happen if they are successful? What would then the world look like? I think then we could go back to a more... Uh, democratized, sovereign system. I mean, the way in which the UN system was originally envisioned by uh, the British, by um, Churchill and FDR back in 1942 when the Atlantic Charter was written, you know, was a world of sovereign states, territorial integrity, progress towards more human rights, towards more democracy. These are the founding principles of the United Nations. we could go back to that if we defeated the CCP. Currently, the CCP is trying to use the UN against these principles. Um, and they're liars. I mean, they claim to be a democracy. It's very clear that they're liars. They claim to be promoting uh, the UN principles. It's very clear that th- these are all lies. We have to wake up to this and we have to take much stronger action now. Otherwise, the concentration of power will continue as it currently is. Well, so then what does that world look like where China has won? I think it would look like China. I mean, that's the best thing we can imagine. So you would you would have not three genocides. You would have hundreds of genocides all over the world. Do you think China would lead to actual like ethnic cleansing in other parts of the world? Absolutely. If you if you know anyone who there are there are hundreds of religions around the world, um, small religions, and they would all be wiped out. There are you know, thousands of languages, they would all be wiped out. Um, China wants a very homogenous political system that's communist and that's Han Chinese. Well, so I think I think many Americans would probably have a hard time understanding this. Like, for example, um, if China does become the dominant power, like, how would they stop, for instance, this show or any show criticizing the Chinese Communist Party on YouTube or, you know, on the internet. All of you guys would be put in a re-education camp. There would be no more show. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but how would that happen? Like how how would China be able to tell the United States to put me into a re-education camp? 
Well, if China was able at some point down the road um, to have, say, a stronger military than the U.S., um, a stronger economy, if they were able to um, compromise the leadership of the U.S. and other de democratic nations to such a point um, that they were turning them into communist countries, um, satellite countries of China, all you have to do is look at how did the you know Moscow subordinate all of the Eastern European countries. Um, they moved troops into them. They compromised their leaders in various ways. They put their leaders on the payroll uh, and they were fake sovereign countries. They were really answering to Moscow. And in all of those countries, uh, you know, religions were repressed, languages were repressed. Um, Ukraine had horrible, horrible famines because Stalin just took all the grain out of the country and used it for his own purposes. So. You mentioned what uh, like the United States can do. That won't happen unless the American people demand it or want it. Mm. So especially since I'm feeling very uh, involved in this now, like my neck is on the line, what can people watching do to, to head <laughs> the currents of history in a different direction? I would say one of the most important things we as Americans can do is demand that Washington, D.C., rid itself of political corruption um, through corporate influence of, uh, you know, you have Apple, Nike, Coca-Cola, they were all lobbying, they're spending millions of dollars on lobbying against the Uyghur Human Rights Act, against the, you know, uh, the new law that the House just passed uh, to end forced labor of the Uyghurs. You know, that should be illegal. You shouldn't be able to uh, you know, lot use millions of dollars to lobby for slavery, essentially. Uh, and so you think if the American people are united enough in w demanding this kind of action, that the concentration of power would be in the hands of the Americans, pe the American people? It would help. It would help. It, it might help turn the tide. I mean, if we could make our government rational, then our government may be able to do something. And the way to make it rational is to remove the influence of the all of the corporations that are doing business in China. They're making billions, 600 billion a year in trade with China, $2.3 trillion of institutional investments in China, including state pension funds. All of that money has a massive influence on our senators, on our House of Representatives, and on the president. All of that, you know, the money that that Chinese money, all of those flows need to be the, the influence that that has over our politicians needs to be cut 100 percent. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, once again, that book is uh, Concentration of Power. We'll put a link to that below. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And thank you for watching this episode. We also did a more in-depth interview with Anders Kaur on the China Unscripted podcast. I put a link to that below, so be sure to check it out. I've also linked to his new book, The Concentration of Power. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. See you next time.